You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. On the night of May 6, 1915, as his ship approached the coast of Ireland, Captain William Thomas Turner left the bridge and made his way to the first-class lounge, where passengers were taking part in a concert and talent show, a customary feature of Cunard crossings. The room was large and warm, paneled in mahogany and carpeted in green and yellow, with two 14-foot-tall fireplaces in the front and rear walls. Ordinarily, Turner avoided events of this kind aboard ship because he disliked the social obligations of captaincy. But tonight was no ordinary night, and he had news to convey. There was already a good deal of tension in the room, despite the singing and piano playing and clumsy magic tricks, and this became more pronounced when Turner stepped forward at intermission. His presence had the perverse effect of affirming everything the passengers had been fearing since their departure from New York, in the way that a priest's arrival tends to undermine the cheery smile of a nurse. Eric Larson is the author of nonfiction works that include Isaac's Storm, The Devil in the White City, Thunderstruck, and In the Garden of Beasts. His new book is Dead Wake. Thank you for joining me, Eric. Thank you for having me. Eric, once again, you demonstrate uh, the power of taking facts from what we call history and turning them into story. And this time around, I think you've included more threads in the web you weave. This is not just a novel of suspense and terror and war. We have a a really vital romance in here, and I thought that was an interesting thread for you to pick up. I I presume you're talking about the President Wilson thread. Yeah, that was was something that kind of startled me. I knew that Wilson in any book about the Lusitania would have to, of course, have a significant role. But I have to tell you, when I was was at the Library of Congress reading Wilson's papers and I came across uh, the love letters he wrote to his girlfriend, I was like, oh my gosh, these are wonderful. Now, I did not discover these letters. You know, they're known to any Wilson biographer. But they came wholly new to me and really completely um, revised my sense of Wilson. I had always thought he was kind of a stiff, frankly, but um, I came to really like him because of, because of this. His story was that, uh, you know, as of August 1914, his wife of many years had died. He was cast into deepest grief and loneliness, and this at a time when the war in Europe began as well. But come the spring of 1915, he had fallen in love with a 40-something widow in Washington, D.C., Edith Bowling Galt, uh, often seen tooling around her neighborhood in DuPont Circle in her electric car. He had fallen head over heels in love with her. She was a little bit, uh, she did not re- return his passion to begin with. But he wrote letter after letter of the most passionate outpourings you could, you could ever imagine. And I decided then and there, as I was reading these in the Library of Congress, that uh, these letters and this guy and this romance are going in this book no matter what, <laughs> whether they belong or not. <laughs> well, I think that's one of the things, the power of this book. As I was reading this, I was thinking that in many ways we really have to rethink the way we teach history. I read the facts, the raw facts of the Lusitania sinking, and it there are just raw facts. What you do with this book is use the sinking of the Lusitania as a centerpiece to draw this amazing portrait of essentially most of the civilized world 
at, during the years of 1914 and 1915 and essentially how we got there and where we went after that. And I think that finding the story thread to uh, bring all these events together and to tell this as a story makes so much more of an impression on readers and would, on students as well, I would think. Well, you know, I, 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 don't, I can't speak for, for uh, students and, and readers. What I, what I do feel, though, is that for me, really, it's part of the, the fun of, of doing history is to find a framework, find, a, find a, 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 the, the, the skeleton of the story I want to tell, and then hang on that skeleton, all the great stuff that I come across about an era, or, you know, and, and, you know, Wilson's love letters, uh, and little things like the fact that May 1st, 1915, which is when the ship departed, um, was uh, Straw Hat Day. That's when men were at last allowed to put on their straw hats in America. Until then, they had to wear their winter hats, you know, things like that. It's a way of hanging, hanging all this great stuff onto a story and still have it, still have some assurance that the story is going to clip along without getting tedious. Well, you have so many wonderful characters in here, and I think one of the suspense points as we're reading this book is where did he get this stuff from? And if if this we're hearing so much about this person, did they really survive or did he pull this stuff out? It's a really interesting reading experience because a lot of the stuff that's happening for readers is completely outside of the text and even to a certain extent outside of the story. We're wondering about you, the writer. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Well, you know, I mean, <clears throat> one of the things that, well, first, one thing that I want to make, uh, you know, I, I want to say about this book and and. Um, you know, this is not the typical kind of book that I would be inclined to do because it's a it's a it's a big subject that is really, at, at least superficially, well known. You know, it almost seems like it's just too. To me, it almost seemed like it was too obvious a thing to do. But I've always had a maritime an interest in maritime history. What made me want to do this book um, was the fact that there was such a deep, rich archival reservoir of material. So, so compelling, so textured, um, in a way, frankly, that I had not encountered in any of my previous books, that it made me think there was something I could bring that was new to the to the party, to the, to the historiography of the Lusitania, and that was suspense. There were there were elements of there were materials that I came across in the course of my research that that really persuaded me that I could do something I, I had not been able to do before, at least not to this extent, is to is to essentially tell a nonfiction maritime thriller. And so that's what motivated me throughout. And, and you know, the, the fine-grained material, you mentioned characters where you wonder where I got this and are these people still alive or not alive? Did they survive or not survive? Well, that was one of the compelling things. You know, like there's a passage where I talk about the things that things that people were wearing on the day of, uh, you know, uh, on the day of, uh, uh, you know, the last uh, day of the, the ship's voyage. And um, I don't tell you how I know that, and I don't want to tell you now, but uh, it's not what you think. <laughs> well, I think as readers, this feeling of suspense for this is really interesting, and it's a very interesting experience. It's written like a page-turner. It reads like a page-turner. It's all real. But even though—and we know what happened. We know what it's saying. So there, essentially, as readers, we should not be in the tense state we are throughout the— 
the work. And I think the reason that this works that way is that you immerse us enough in the perspectives of the characters who don't know what's going on and right. don't know what's going to happen. And I'd like you to talk about creating that prose effect. Yeah. Well, I, first of all, it, it is very gratifying when I hear from readers who say that, you know, and I've heard, I've started hearing this already um, from from uh, early readers of the book, mainly because I'm fairly active on Twitter. And I love it that that some readers t- are telling me that they, they find themselves hoping that the ship won't sink, you know, which is fascinating. Uh, well, I, that's true. I, <clears throat> I, I would agree with that. Yeah. yeah. I'm also, actually, I'm also hearing from, from readers who find themselves uh, um, uh, kind of rooting for the submarine commander, which is very interesting. But, you know, I, I think part of it is, is the paradox of, um, it's a beautiful paradox of, of reading. You can know the ending, but if, if, you, if there's something about the narrative that lets you sink into it, no pun intended, that lets you sink into it, um, uh, you're going to forget that you know the ending. It's like, it's like when I re- read um, Walter Lord's A Night to Remember, I find myself hoping the Titanic won't sink. Or, or, you know, when I read Barbara Tuckman's The Guns of August, another book that I've read several times, I find myself hoping that World War I won't start. You know, I'm thinking, oh, these people cannot be such, such idiots to allow this war to start. And, of course, it, it, almost, it always does, you know. So, but <clears throat> the, thing, the thing is that if you, if you – what I really try to do is I really try to insert myself into the point of view of the era and to have uh, the action unfold – um, in the manner that it unfolded for those aboard the ship, and so in that way, I think I think I can encourage readers to suspend suspend their knowledge. I mean, everything is everything is 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 where it is supposed to be, where where and how it's happening at that particular moment. And, you know, case in point, even something as subtle as the fact that in the book I never mentioned World War II because it hadn't happened yet, and I don't refer to this war as World War One. Because it was never called World War One until World War Two, so I refer to it as you know the war, the the Great War, or or something else, just so that we're always in the point of view of that era, and that encourages I think uh, readers to feel as if they are going through this in the same way that the passengers did. This speaks to the power of story, and finding the character stories and the character arcs against the arcs of. The ships who are both the both the U-boat and the Lusitania are characters. The country and the sea where this unfolds are are characters. You have a lot of characters that aren't human in this book, so to speak, but right. they're fully on characters. Well, true, true. But the centerpiece, the, the central engine, is the conversion of the ship and and the submarine, and. That became possible, and, and, and frankly, this, that, this is one reason why, another reason why I decided to do the book. That became possible because the submarine commander left um, behind um, his war log, that is, his, the actual record of his patrol, the patrol during which he sank the Lusitania from the time he left Germany to the time of his return. And it includes narrative passages about you know his encounter with British destroyers, uh, his frustration with weather, his frustration with failed torpedoes, fog, the lack of targets, and and so forth. And so, having having this this record of his voyage, and knowing of course a lot about the Lusitania's voyage from from records uh, from things passed down by survivors. Um, you know the logical structure, of course, was to have the 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 story powered by the convergence of these two vessels, cut from one to the other um, and back, and so the vessels themselves become characters. Um, uh, 
frankly, the, the, the circumstances at, at sea, the weather um, becomes kind of a character, the fog and, and waves and the whole deal. Everything kind of converges, though, on this one, on this, on this one framework, this, 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 this story of the, the fact that we know that here's the Lusitania and here's the submarine, and we know they're going to encounter each other at some point. We don't know when. We know it's going to happen, and in the interim, we're seeing all these things that are happening that, 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 in some cases, may make somebody think, "Well, geez, maybe they're going to encounter, but it's not going to sink the Lusitania." Like poor Schwieger, Captain Schwieger is having a hell of a time on this patrol with failed torpedoes and lousy weather and fog. Maybe he's going to. It's not going to happen, you know. Well, yeah. <clears throat> Two, this to a certain extent plays off of. Uh, as much off of what we don't know as what we do know. We know, I think most of us know it sank and it had something to do with World War One. That may be just about as far as it goes. Just to, so to have all the details filled in is really pleasurable, and the way you do it is pleasurable. It's clear there are two books worth of details <laughs> that you had to leave out. So I'd like you to talk about that winnowing process. Yeah, well, that is, that is actually, actually a very astute observation. When I'm working on a book, I am only content when I know that I have far more material than I'm going to need, because only then are you in a position to to, to cherry pick, to put it, to leave in only the absolute best things that you found. You, there's no padding, you know, uh, no no superfluous stuff just to make the length of a book. So I probably have at least uh, three books worth of material winnowed down to to one. And that process, I, I don't I don't do any serious winnowing really until I'm done with the first draft. And then, uh, I, so you have like a, a twelve hundred page first draft. <laughs> well, it's long. It's not twelve hundred pages, but it's long. It's long. But but um, it, it's at that point when I I can relax, and that's the most fun for me is when there is at last a, a complete first draft. Because you know, then the anxiety, which is always there, don't let anybody tell you otherwise. There's always the anxiety that this book you thought was there, this book that you were sure was there, is not, that it's not working. But by the time you have your first draft, you know that it, you have a book and it's working. Um, and then comes the art. You know, that's the, that's the fun part where you make that book as good as it possibly can be. And it's at that point that I start taking things out. It's kind of like, uh, I suppose, like maybe like doing sculpture. You know, start with a block of marble, and then you start you know, chipping away at it and taking things out until you have this, this lovely you know, Michelangelo thing. <laughs> Not to equate my work to Michelangelo, believe me. But, but um, you do want to start, um, you, know, you, you start pairing things out, reading for pace, uh, modifying structure. And where, where uh, one extremely helpful element in my secret weapon is, is actually my wife. She's a natural, natural uh, editor, and she goes through uh, my, my book at that point and um, tells me in very you know, direct terms and mar- margin notations what's boring, what's not, what needs to go, what needs to stay. And I always take her advice. If she has, we have this complex system of... of um, of uh, uh, of symbols like up arrows means it's good, down arrows means I know from experience. Now I just take it out, I just cut it. You know, smiley face is good, sad face is good. Uh, she uh, will periodically have long receding lines of Z's, meaning it's really boring. That goes, you know. So it's very very helpful to to start taking things up. But you got to you got to develop an ear, frankly. And and once you've once you've gotten ear. Um, it's taken me years and years to develop this sort of sense of what I think needs to be in a story and what doesn't. That that helps. That helps too. 
Well, I, I would have to say that this is a book does feel really stripped down. It's very intense page turner. And one of the things that I think is really interesting is is that you can manage by virtue of the fact that we know what's going to happen. You can make the really small details at the front that foreshadow um, what's going to happen. Very intense uh, and pacey. You can just describe something, and we think we know. Oh my God, is that going to survive? This is, you know, they've ignored that. What about that? And, and uh, salting that through the book must be really fun. Well, exactly, and that's, I mean, that, that's that's where that's where you 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 turn the fact that everybody knows the story to your advantage. And that becomes a powerful engine to, for for reinforcing the suspense that I'm trying to conjure throughout the throughout the, the book, and so you can you can really even <laughs> it really is actually a lot of fun because because you know you can you can see a fact and you can think okay I now a reader is going to read this like when I'm talking about the complicated clothing of of children you know mm-hmm. at the start of the voyage and I'm I'm describing what they what they wore in detail. Well, there's that question that uh, I, I think invariably a reader's going to have. So, wait a minute, whoa. How does he know what they were wearing? What, how does he know in so much detail? Oh, wait, don't tell me he knows because the kids died, you know, <laughs> and they and they categorized, you know, all, the, all their possessions. You know, there's that kind of thing. So, so it's, uh, it, it, it really is kind of becomes then kind of a... Uh, Kind of a game. Uh, I mean, I like to kind of imagine, you know, putting on my Alfred Hitchcock hat and just kind of thinking, okay, now what would, what would he do? Only, of course, mine's nonfiction. But you know, you 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 choose the things that are, are gonna suggest, uh, you know, what's coming down the pike. I, you know, when you said that, I just had this image of you as, uh, in, as an Alfred Hitchcock figure lurking in the narrative. <laughs> Well, it's sort of maniacally cackling, <laughs> thinking. I mean, there is, there, there is, you know, I'm, I'm often asked, um, you know, how, how does this kind of thing affect me? You know, writing these dark, dark things, does it, does it really stay with me? And the answer is no, really, because what, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm functioning on, on two levels. Part of me um, recognizes, you know, of course, the horror and the sadness and so forth. But the other part of me is very clinical. It's very much the Alfred Hitchcock. As as director, and I'm thinking always, well, wow, this here's this thing. I know this is tragic and sad, but wow, this is really good in terms of the narrative. You know, where is this going to fit into my story? How am I going to how am I going to use this fact in a way to further the story and and ramp up the uh, ramp up the the suspense? And that becomes really a very sort of pleasurable for me. I mean, I don't know about the reader. You know, this, the reader's experience is, is, is a much more tragic thing than I am. But as a writer trying to craft a narrative that is going to really zip along, it really becomes quite um, quite 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 fun maybe is the wrong word but quite quite fun in trying to anticipate okay what is a reader going to think about this and is that what i want them to think at that point well you know too as readers i think we have a a certain kind of a split personality about reading this book on one hand it's just a pleasure to be so immersed in these events and in these lives and even though you know it's tragedy and when you see the tragedy unfold i mean make no mistake about it it's exciting <laughs> <laughs> well sure. And, sure and so we have this very interesting experience of anticipating the excitement anticipating the horror and the tragedy and we enjoy all that anticipation even the 
when the tragedy pays off and we see these scenes of sorrow and horror and, and we feel that, but we've been anticipating feeling that as part of the pleasurable reading experience. Right, right. So what does that say about all of us? I don't know. <laughs> There's something but, deeply wrong. <laughs> There's something deeply wrong. But it is, it is though, uh, you know, when you're trying to – the way I like to think of it is that really what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to put people on, on that ship. I'm trying to put readers on that ship. And the U-boat. <clears throat> and, the, and in the U-boat so that we can share – um, to the extent that it's possible, thanks to the human imagination, we can share um, what those people were were going through, how they were experiencing the unfolding of this disaster um, at the time, and 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 you know again, we I, I think because of the, the the beauty of of human imagination and the, the beautiful paradox of. Of, of reading, um, we can do that. We can join them on the boat, and we can suspend for the time being uh, our knowledge of the inevitable outcome, you know, of, of what's coming coming down down the pike. And we can even, as as I said, you know, we can even find ourselves thinking, gosh, I hope, I hope Captain Schwieger gets some kind of target, and I hope he sinks something, as otherwise <laughs> this is a very depressing voyage for him. <laughs> you know, I, I was so. among those people. Well, yeah. And, and well, let's talk a little bit about it because Schwieger and Turner, I think, will are qualify for your your main characters. Uh, they're 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 important characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and probably, frankly, probably the main characters are the are the submarine and the ship. But mm-hmm. uh, Turner and Turner and uh, Turner and Schwieger are are of course very important characters. But yeah, well, talk about uh, just uh, researching Turner and and finding out about him. I mean. And and Schwieger, did you actually see those? Did you get to hold the logs? <laughs> the actual log, well, the actual log, uh, I did not get to hold the actual log, but I, I, I saw the actual um, uh, facsimile of the log that was in uh, in uh, British intelligence files, and that's in the uh, archives of the UK in London. And of course, I I I, I have a translation of of that log. But there were many other artifacts that, uh, in, in the course of my research, that I was able to actually sort of put my my sweaty palms on. One of which was, uh, for example, the uh, there's a code book that is material to the story, and uh, it was a code book that was said to have been found in the arms of a dead German sailor who'd washed ashore on a beach after his ship was sunk by the by the Russians. And uh, at one point, when I was sitting there in the archives of the UK, um, one of the boxes that I requested came out, and I opened it up, and there, in this box, was that actual code book, book that was supposedly washed ashore with this guy just sitting there, you know. And I was able to just, you know, open it, look through it, you know, see all the very various code groups, you know, the three-letter code for even for like Nantucket, you know, was in there, you know, thirty thousand codes. Uh, here was the book. This was the book, and I'm touching it. It was just really a fascinating kind of experience. Well, I think that you do a great job of uh, bringing all that, using all that experience that you had to inform the writing and inform the book. Let's talk a little bit just about these two ships, yes. as you call them the main characters. I think one of the things that interests me about this book, it's a book about cutting-edge technology, absolute cutting-edge technology at the time. What I was thinking of is when they build that bullet train in California, I'm not going to be the first person on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, the important thing to realize, and again, this cuts back to going back to, the, like I said, back to trying to try and stay within the point of view of a, of a particular era. The important thing to recognize was that the submarine 
at this point was, the submarine at this point was a wholly new weapon. Hard for us to appreciate now after, you know, so many World War II submarine movies and other, other films and books and so forth. But at the start of World War I, um, the submarine was a, a brand new weapon. It was poorly understood even by the navies that launched them. Um, how it would completely subvert the longstanding rules of civilized maritime warfare, nobody understood. Um, and uh, that's, that's actually a big part of the story as well. Lusitania just happened to, that, that episode happened to occur at a time when the rules were being fairly um, radically discarded by, by, by Germany, and nobody really appreciated what that meant yet. Well, too, um, part of the reason this happened was because uh, the lack of communications between submarine, again, a techn technological point, they couldn't, they were not in constant contact. We're used to a world where everybody's in constant contact. Right, right. They were not. Well, that is, that is another element of the story, and that is, uh, you know, for the first, uh, I mean, for the first 24 hours of, of Schwieger's voyage, he was in contact by wireless with his, with his base. Um, but from then on, one of the one of the uh, one of the positives from the perspective of a submarine commander was that he was absolutely in command and on his own. One of the negatives from the perspective of what ultimately happened in, with regard to submarine attacks on ships was that it also meant, as one German official said, that you know the fate of the war was essentially in the hands of a young submarine commander who who could you know make a mistake to to drag America into the war. You know, once you a submarine commander once he was away from base was he was in charge of this 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 uh, lethal weapon. Did not have to did not have to talk to any superiors. He just made his decisions and, and went with it. And that was um, that was one of the elements of the story that was very um, very powerful to me. And it's interesting too the way you describe some of the the details. I've like many people, I've seen a million submarine <clears throat> movies, but the details as you describe them make a big difference, <laughs> a big delta between what you describe and Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, first of all, one thing we all need to realize is that, first of all, this was before sonar, so there's none of that ping, ping, ping thing, you know, that we're all used to from World War II books. And there were no death charges yet, so that was one element of submarine life that at least, you know, that, that horrifying aspect was not was not something that the crew had to deal with, but everything else they had to deal with, you know, is, it was really an eye-opener to me how how primitive um, uh, the World War I uh, submarines were, how primitive and actually quite fragile and, frankly, not terribly good at being underwater for any length of time, and the circumstances, the, 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 the conditions that their crews, these 36 men, had to go through, um, risking death you know, really every moment, and not just from, from British destroyers, but from anything, from somebody who failed to latch a, a hatch, from, from uh, you know, somebody making a mistake, from something exploding. I mean, it, it, the, the opportunities to die in a World War I submarine were, were just so numerous, it's really hard to imagine that anybody would even want to be on one of those ships, and yet that was a coveted duty. And it was a coveted duty because if you were in the Navy, it was really the one place where you could be assured of, of seeing action and helping your, helping your country. But the conditions were awful. Now, part of the action they hoped to see was they were sent out with a remit to sink enemy warships. 
but they were judged by the tonnage. So explain that, and which is uh, <clears throat> drives a major plot point in the book. Yeah, well, so for 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 Captain Schwieger, his goal was to sink as much tonnage as he possibly could, um, and he didn't particularly care what kind. Um, uh, he would, of course, have loved to have sunk a, an actual warship, but but a big part of his job was to sink uh, commerce, anything that might be bringing supplies to to Britain, and that was the big fun. That was the biggest change in maritime warfare was this, the use of submarines against civilian shipping. You know, once upon a time there were very strict rules governing how you attacked a, a civilian ship. Submarine changed all that because, you know, you could not bring the crew of the, the target ship aboard. You couldn't spare uh, enough men to bring it into port. Um, you know, it just completely changed all those, all those rules um, to the point where, um, you know, I mean, if, if a submarine commander went after a, went after a, um, went after a, a, a civilian ship, um, he didn't really have to pay much attention to whether it was a passenger ship, um, whether it was carrying contraband or not. It was just up to him to fire away, and that's what Schweiger was doing, Schwieger, Captain Schwieger. And <clears throat> moreover, when a submarine attacked a ship, the other ships in the area were under orders not to go help rescue, but to stay away. Well, yes, this is something that 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 um, this order uh, arose early in the in the war, and this again, this cuts to the idea that nobody really understood the power uh, of the submarine and and the what it would ultimately do to maritime warfare. What had happened is that you know um, until until the the episode I'm about to describe until this point you know both navies didn't think very much about what submarines were going to be able to achieve as offensive weapons but then one day um, three old um, uh, relatively obsolete British cruisers were patrolling in the North Sea um, and they were moving at a leisurely pace uh, you know this is like before anybody really understood and uh, they were uh, uh, a, a German U-boat came across them. The U-boat sank one of the ships, and the other two, of course, stopped their engines and dropped boats and went to help. This same U-boat then sank a second one of the three cruisers. And just as people were starting to realize, the sailors and captains and, and officers of these ships were realizing, oh, wait a minute, the other ship just started to fire up its engines to get away, and it too was sunk. So three ships were sunk in short order by one submarine. And this resulted in the order by the Admiralty that henceforth no large British warship uh, should ever stop to rescue the survivors of a submarine attack because it might itself become subject to attack. And preservation of so-called capital ships was tantamount, was absolutely important, was paramount, rather. One of the things, as shocking as Schwieger's decision to end the Germans' uh, this seeming ease <clears throat> with attacking civilian ships uh, was, there were equally shocking calculations being made on the British side as well. Uh, this begins with what the Lusitania was packed with uh, coming out of the docks. Yeah, I mean the, the 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 British priority was at all costs to, to keep the flow of supplies, materiel, <clears throat> weapons, ammunition, and so forth um, flowing to to Britain, um, 
and it had become fairly common practice actually to smuggle smuggle um, uh, things aboard uh, outbound uh, ships, including passenger ships. In the case of the Lusitania, there was no effort to hide the fact that the Lusitania was carrying a large volume of small arms ammunition, and also uh, also a significant cargo of, of sort of quasi inert shrapnel shells, very badly needed by by the British in, in, in France. These were, um, even though everybody sort of, you know, there's this like speculation about munitions and that there's this kind of mystery that has long lingered about the Lusitania, there is no mystery. It was carrying munitions and they were publicly listed on its manifest. Did they uh, account for the sinking? No, they did not account for the sinking, but they were in fact there. So, you know, you can, you know, you can argue, I suppose, one could argue that Captain Schwieger was justified in sinking the Lusitania because it was, in fact, carrying lots and lots of small arms ammunition in these shells. But on the other hand, uh, you know, 1,200 civilians uh, um, uh, were, were killed in, in this attack, and is that ever justified, you know? So the rules were absolutely changing, and it was very clear that this was going to be a war unlike any other. Well, another rule that was changing was based around that code book you mentioned, and this also leads us to World War II in that the uh, the events surrounding the sinking of the Lusitania point to an equally horrific event in World War II. Uh, so um, talk about this the calculation of not wanting to reveal that you know the code and the war room 40 who is also a very <laughs> right, interesting right. conflict in there and a very famous man makes an appearance well yeah one of the things that i really loved about the story um was this uh, was this room 40 um the name of a very super uh, super secret uh intelligence uh element within the admiralty that came into being after the british navy acquired not just the one code book, but miraculously two others, two others of, so, so essentially the Admiralty possessed all three of Germany's most important uh, code books. The decision was made very early in the war by Churchill, by Winston Churchill, who was first Lord of the Admiralty, and, and by a handful of others who were privy to this secret, um, uh, was to set up this top secret intelligence uh, operation to um, to take intercepted uh, German naval wireless communications and de- decode and decipher decipher and decode them, um, uh, which gave Room 40 a very compelling window into the day-to-day activities of the entire German fleet. Any message that was intercepted by uh, Britain's wireless uh, uh, antenna and that was relayed to Room 40 was read. Uh, essentially, all communications, all German naval communications were now being read by the British Navy and they continued to read them uh, up until very late in the war because Germany, in its arrogance, was not decided apparently not to change their their code books. They couldn't. They, they had no conception that this this uh, the, these books had become in the possession of British intelligence. And so, Room Forty was you know casually reading all this intelligence, and in fact knew exactly when U twenty the the U boat that sank the Lusitania when U twenty left Germany knew precisely um, where it was in its first 24 hours because the U-boat's radio man sent position reports, knew also um, precisely where it was headed, uh, which was a patrol zone just off Liverpool. Um, 
all this information in their possession, but not, um, by the way, conveyed to Captain William Thomas Turner, master of the Lusitania. Well, that too was, uh, this turns on a bit on President Wilson's romance and his distraction. And because he was uh, dragging his feet with regards to getting America involved in this war, he didn't want anything to do with it. They tried to preserve his neutrality. Yeah, uh, he. I, I would. I wouldn't. I wouldn't refer to it as dragging his feet. I mean, Wilson. Wilson really believed to his to his core that that entering this this war um, uh, on behalf of of anyone um, w- was really. A, a very dangerous thing that America simply was not was not ready for. You know, both before and after the the Lusitania, he did not want America America to get into this war. Nobody did. Nobody in America wanted to get into this thing. Um, and uh, but it, but it was it was actually a very compelling part of the story for me. The fact that as the ship is is crossing, as it has left New York and is headed toward Liverpool. He is at the peak of his of his distraction with regard to uh, his girlfriend. He's writing these love letters, these incredible things. Um, but he's also still attending to state business. I mean, he, he was a he was a consummate professional. He was very good as as president. Uh, he just happened to be at this point really in sort of an, an emotional turmoil. And then, of course, boom! The, there's the Lusitania, which really, um, really threw him into and the country. Well, it's interesting. The 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 Lusitania. I think there is a perception that the sinking of Lusitania was World War One's equivalent of Pearl Harbor. Boom! Ship sinks. We're in the war. Didn't happen. Didn't happen. Yeah, it's funny. While I was doing my research for this book, I would ask friends. I'd say, "All right, so." So how long do you think it took between the time the Lusitania was hit by this torpedo and America got into the war? And the estimates that I heard from my, my friends and family were, well, two days to two months. Two full years. It was two full years before we got into the war. And when President Wilson finally um, finally asked Congress for authorization to, to go to war, um, he never once mentioned the Lusitania because by then so many other things had happened. So that was one of the things that I was really kind of kind of surprised by. But, you know, here was Wilson. Here was Wilson distracted, uh, yes, distracted, not to the point of, of, you know, not being able to run the country, but he was deeply distracted and deeply in sort of an emotional turmoil. And then, imagine that, here's this sinking that, that uh, you know, kills, uh, you know, 120-some Americans. And, and um, boy, what a, what a, what a moment that must have been for 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 a uh, for a president. A president, yes. For Churchill, it was a very different kind of moment, <laughs> and I think that this uh, Churchill's calculation here, the documents are that that exist are somewhat unclear. There are. Well, you might... They're suggestive, <laughs> but not confirmatory. Right. <laughs> yes. So what are they suggestive well, so, of? Well, so here, here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing. The, the, um, one thing is clear is that uh, Winston Churchill, as first lord of the admiralty, that means the top guy in the, in the, uh, in the admiralty uh, in Britain, he would have welcomed, uh, it's clear, any, any event that occurred that caused America to enter the war on behalf of, of Britain. He would have absolutely welcomed that. And in fact, early on, he writes a letter to, um, to uh, uh, head of the Board of Trade 
um, saying that uh, Britain needed all the traffic it could possibly get from America in terms of sheer supply. Then he added this very interesting other paragraph saying, and if any of that traffic, meaning American shipping, if any of that traffic uh, gets into trouble, all the better. He knew even early on in the war that that could be the thing that would bring America into the war. So here comes the Lusitania. Uh, I mean, I think it's pretty clear based especially on what Churchill later wrote in his history of World War I and how he wrote it, that that he, he expected, he wholly expected that America at that point would, would get into uh, would get into World War One, and I think he very likely was deeply deeply unhappy that it didn't. Now, um, does he ever say that? No, um, not directly. Does he ever? Uh, is there any smoking memo where he says, you know, we need to leave the Lusitania unprotected in harm's way um, because we know this submarine is there? We no, we don't have that either. What we do have, though, is a collection of evidence um, uh, as to why the ship was was left alone or, or as to the fact that it was left alone in those waters despite the mounting threat all around. If you look at that collection of evidence and you try to you know, prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that there was some kind of conspiracy, some kind of plot by Churchill or someone or someone in the Admiralty to leave the ship exposed, you can't do it. You can't do it without, you know, without a shadow of a doubt. At the same time, if you take that same body of information and you try to prove that there was not a plot or a conspiracy, you can't do that either. It's just so, it's just such a lingering, lasting mystery, and it will very likely never be resolved. Now, what I do, though, is I, I hang the, the whole thing, frankly, on a, on a uh, uh, quite prominent British naval historian who actually had once been an intelligence agent, uh, had once been in intelligence, in naval intelligence uh, in World War um, II, I believe it was. Um, this, this gentleman, um, uh, while professing to be a, a lover of the Royal Navy, at first when he first wrote about um, Room 40 and dealt with the Lusitania kind of in passing, his view was that it was left uh, on to its own resources because of a, as he put it, a monumental cock-up. It was just a, a screw-up. But later in life, as evidence um, came, came, uh, came forward, um, he changed his mind, um, and he felt, and, and this is, by the way, something he says in a, an interview that's on file in the Imperial War Museum in, in London, he says that um, he says that uh, um, as much as you know, he, he he essentially recants his previous view that it was a, an error, and he says that you know as much as he loves the Royal Navy, he's come to believe that it was in fact a plot of some kind. He doesn't know who who plotted or what the the nature of it was, where it originated, but he came to the conclusion that there had to have been because there was no other way to explain what ultimately happened in terms of the, the, the ship being so so unprotected, despite the knowledge that was in possession of, of the Admiralty and, and others. It wasn't just the Admiralty. The Germans advertised in American well, newspapers. Did you, yeah, well, there, 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 was that, there was that warning, but that was coincidence. That was a coincidence that that, that that ad from the German embassy ran on the morning of the ship's departure. And it, did, it was a warning that uh, reiterated to... Uh, to travelers that Germany had set up a war zone uh, around the British Isles, and it was essentially saying, you know, we we established this war zone that they had done it the previous February. We established this war zone. Now we're essentially reminding you that any traveler travels at his own risk. Now it happened also um, by coincidence that these were ads were placed on the various uh, shipping pages, the shipping news pages of newspapers in New York. One of these, at least one of these ads, wound up uh, adjacent to Cunard's ad for the Lusitania.
Um, and many sort of interpreted this this warning as being aimed directly at Lusitania. So there was there was that element as well. But again, that warning um, was really put there by accident. I, I have to underscore that Captain Schwieger was not hunting the Lusitania. He was not stalking this ship. He was looking for anything that had a bow under the water. <laughs> he, well, his, his specific order is that he was to look for large, large troop transports. There had been a rumor <laughs> that it was planted by British intelligence. One reason these submarines had set out this unusual foray from Germany was because British naval intelligence had very successfully um, uh, 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 persuaded uh, uh persuaded Germany that the British were going to launch a, a, a seaborne invasion of the German coast, which was not the case. This was a ruse intended to try to distract troops from, the, from, from, from France to the German, German coast. But because of this ruse set up by German intelligence, uh, set up by British intelligence, Germany launched this, this, this exceptional foray of four submarines to hunt for troop transports that would be used in that, uh, that uh, alleged invasion. And these were troop transports that were said to be leaving from ports where troop transports did not usually leave from, among them Liverpool, which is why Schwieger was there in the first place. So, uh, so it's very contorted, very contorted saga. But, but you know, I, it, it, the fact is he was not looking for the Lusitania. He was looking for tonnage, and he was looking for troop transports, and he was having terrible luck on this on this on this patrol. And if if anyone of a dozen uh, little things had gone just slightly differently. He and Lusitania would have would have passed harmlessly, um, and he would have been on his way home. Well, the for me as I read this, uh, especially about these memos and, and Churchill, uh, in the perfect hindsight of having uh, knowing a little bit about World War II and the decision made with regards to the bombing of Coventry. That seems a lot more explicable in terms of this, or maybe that casts this that casts a shadow back onto this. Uh, you know, I, I'm I'm not I'm not up on the bombing of Coventry. You know, I can't I can't speak to subsequent events, but but um, you know, there's always there are always thoughts and there are always concerns about you know conspiracies and and so forth. And frankly, um, uh, my book you know really centers on the human human drama of the whole thing and and puts to rest some of the conspiracies that really have no business existing in the first place um apart from that one lingering question about why the ship was left to left to uh, uh all by itself in the in the Irish sea despite what was known well the power of the end scene where where things where after things happen is is so great because we you have all these wonderful details about what's in the cabin and we by now you've crafted portraits of all these great characters there was a spiritualist theodate theodate pope richard pritchard <laughs> richard preston pritchard yes yes and, and you and uh, harris and i you know i, I have to say that for all the human drama in here, one of the things I was most concerned about, the thing I most wanted to survive was that Dickens first edition. <laughs> I won't say whether it does or not, but boy, oh boy, that was a great uh, detail. Well, that see the the, the character uh, the, who who uh, is laureate in Valnet's Charles Laureate, a bookseller. Um, I wanted him in the book for a number of reasons. One was that 
How great that back then in the heyday, it's often called the heyday of book collecting uh, or the golden age of book collecting, how great that Charles Laurie, a bookseller from Boston, was really kind of a famous man and was able to you know, afford to travel, you know, a bookseller, right? He was able to travel on a, you know, in first class on the Lusitania, and he had all these things that we don't necessarily want to talk too much about. But, but I, I, loved, I loved Charles Laurie because, um, because of that, but, but mainly because he left behind a lot of detail about not just what happened during the sinking, but about the whole voyage. Um, and and one particular, much to my surprise, he had made this really, really involved filing with what was referred to as the Mixed Claims Commission, which was a commission that uh, convened after the uh, after the war to determine how much people who had lost things or family or whatever in the war could be compensated by by Germany, and so he filed this voluminous filing. Most filings by by by, by people seeking compensation were maybe you know two or three pages. He, his was like 180 pages, 180 pages in which he provided incredible detail, not just about the voyage, but about his his departure from Boston, um, uh, where he went, what he did, and that's why that's why he's really in the book. Well, he's a fun character too because he's um, he, he's a, not st- extremely sympathetic. He you do you do a great job of shading him. I think uh, and shading all the characters, as you said. I I, I love Schweiger. I thought he was a great character. I mean, it's really interesting. You don't necessarily like what he's going to do, but you manage to create in the reader a feeling of respect for the fact that he was going to break rules that he had been somewhat, you know, go right ahead. Right, right. Well, the thing, the thing, the thing I feel very strongly about, about history is that, you know, I, first of all, I don't believe in, in unalloyed heroes. I don't think they exist. I think everybody has warts. There, there's nuance everywhere. And frankly, it's the nuance that I find interesting. Now, you know, when I started the work on this book, you know, uh, was I hoping that Schwieger would be this sort of really, really awful villain? Yes. I mean, I was kind of hoping for a guy with a scar and a monocle and the whole works. Um, but what you go with is what you find in the record, and that's not what the record shows. Schwieger was this 30-something guy, handsome, blue eyes, charismatic. His crew really loved him. He was well-liked throughout the submarine service. A colleague of his, a fellow submarine commander after the war, said of him, he couldn't hurt a fly. He had the happy U-boat. <laughs> he had the happy U-boat, yeah. Or as it was <laughs> referred to in the parlance of the time, the gayest U-boat. did not mean gay as we might know it today, but it was the gayest U-boat. And on on the other side of things, uh, William Thomas Turner is a really interesting character. And what I was surprised by was how much they prepared for this, even though they weren't necessarily—they were told— that, on one hand, everybody on board the Lusitania was told, either a torpedo can't sink this, we'll ram a submarine, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. It's, if it does, it's not going to bother us. But they put a fair amount of preparation into this. Well, yeah, there was, there was a pervasive belief uh, among passengers that the ship was, in fact, too big and too fast to be torpedoed. Um, and there, there are uh, fairly persistent reports that suggest, uh, you know, persistent reports from survivors that... Cunard had assured them that, in fact, the ship would be protected by the Royal Navy when it entered uh, when it entered the the Irish Sea. Um, but uh, despite all this, uh, Captain Turner, you know, took uh, what would by then have, I guess, best be considered the usual precautions with regard to entering 
potentially dangerous waters. You know, the night before they they uh, lowered the boats, uh, lifeboats, to the rails, that is to say, into a position where they'd be more readily accessible. Um, and also, uh, you know, required that uh, all shades and curtains be pulled. And, you know, I think people were even advised not to smoke on deck. Um, and running lights were extinguished um, uh, so that to reduce the, the nighttime profile of, of the ship. Which is very interesting when you think about the fact that, you know, nobody thought this could happen. On the other hand, they're taking precautions because it obviously could. You know, it's this interesting this interesting thing that, that I, I think people do fairly routinely. You know, it's like, eh, I'm not going to, the tornado's not going to hit my house. And yet, um, is the tornado seller stocked? <laughs> you know? <laughs> this is uh, one of the things I think that... Uh, I most liked about this book was uh, just the the weave of these arcs. And I was wondering, when you are putting this together, is there like a point in the process where you have this all up on a wall in some kind of like giant spreadsheet or a, a wall of yellow stickies? <laughs> God, no. No yellow stickies. That would, drive, that would drive me crazy. No, what I do is, again, this cuts back to the period when I finally have that first draft. Um, then... The whole manuscript goes on the floor, um, and I go at it with a with a scissors and paste or tape, and I move things around, and you know I I see see where there'd be a good point to cut away from the Lusitania back to the submarine, and then back to the Lusitania, and I fine tune all that stuff. Strictly very manual process, very visual, very manual. It's part of what I really love about. Uh, about the writing process is that it is it, it's almost uh, it's almost like working working with you know with the, working in, in the visual arts you know you, to me it's a very visual process where I'm standing over this book um, and I'm I'm seeing where chapters should go and it's almost a it's almost a physical thing and maybe I'm picturing the the action and, and how that fits in terms of when when I'm cutting from one place to another but it's something that I, I deeply believe you can't do in the in the confines of a the window of a computer screen. You know, you have to just lay it all out on the floor and just see it all in one place before you can know really, truly what part needs to go where. I've been speaking with Eric Larson. His new book is Dead Wake. Thank you for joining me, Eric. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.